and welcome to We Are History Series 8, John. 8? I've lost count. 8? I mean, some of them had about two and a half episodes in, but Series 8. I don't use the number system for this. I use like the Chinese New Year. This is a series of the monkey. Lovely. (laughs) Beautiful. Next series is a series of the cow. Um, uh, we are back. We're still with the lovely Podmasters people. They haven't got rid of us, John. I know, fantastic. We're, uh, we're still here. Yeah, and thank you for uh, all your downloads and nice comments while we've been away. And your Patreon membership and all of that stuff. We really appreciate it. And uh, because of that, we're able to come back and do another one. Fantastic. Cool. So, John, you're leading this week. We are. Can you believe we're doing the Cold War and I chose it? It makes chose no the, sense. The, 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 I mean, people listening will be going, there's no way John chose this and Angela didn't. It's just not the Cold War. It's the war and afterwards. So uh, I went to see Oppenheimer, Angela. You did, see, I haven't been to see it yet. Oh, well, uh, it's three hours long. That's why I haven't been to see yeah, it yet. Jackie wanted to see it on the aisle so she could slip away if it was 180 minutes of mumbling in the dark about physics. I mean, did you, well, did you see Christopher Nolan's Batman? Yeah, that's mumbling that was, about. That was well, like, I don't know what they're mumbling about. I'm like, definitely Nolan, for it. God's sake, turn some lights on and ask everyone to speak up a bit. Yeah. But no, Oppenheimer was good. I very much enjoyed it. I was a bit confused when I popped out for a wee and I came back and Margot Robbie was dancing in pink and, you know, playing with Ken. I think I may have gone back into the wrong screening, Angela. But, oh, John. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, this is about not specifically what happens in Oppenheimer. This is about the race for the atom bomb uh, on the Anglo-American side, in Germany, Russia, you know, around the world. Cool. So just to warn you, this podcast is a massive spoiler uh, if you haven't seen the film um, because the Americans do get the atom bomb at the end. I haven't seen the film because it's three hours long and... Um, not that I can't, you know, it's other people in a cinema I can't deal with for three hours. There'll be somebody in three hours rustling on their phone. And because of the old ADHD, if somebody just puts their phone on for a second, that's got my attention and I've lost the film. So I just wait till I can watch it at home in silence, in the dark. With your dog yapping and yeah, My dog will be shut in the other room with my husband. Okay. Well, anyway, I I saw it and I thought it was very good. But I think we need to know more. And as I say, not just about how the Americans got the bomb, but about the British nuclear program, the Nazis race to get the atomic bomb and how the Russians ended up with the bomb. And all of this amazingly happened within one decade of the discovery of nuclear fission in uranium. So that's what this episode is about, the race for the bomb. Christopher Nolan took three hours just to tell the story of the Americans, yet John is going to add in some Germans, some Brits, the Russians. We're going to be here a while, aren't we? It is complicated stuff, Angela. There was a 600-page book in the library, and I got it out. I read 600 pages on nuclear physics, and you want me to explain it to you, then you're making a huge presumption about how much of that technical stuff I understood. should have done a podcast on the history of Barbie instead. That would have been fun. Actually, the BBC Witness history, which is a great programme, by the way, on the World Service, they did one on that. It was very good, about the woman who invented the Barbie. Actually, it would be an interesting story about the woman who invented her and all that. Anyway, that's not what we're doing. Sorry, people. My source material for this podcast was... Atomic, The First War of Physics and the Secret History of the Atom Bomb by Jim Baggett. And Angela's preparation was listening to Atomic by Blondie. I love how you say that, Joe. It's a good joke, but I love that you know as well as I do that I have read many books about the history of, of atomic, atomic history. Bow, bow, bow. Um, <laughs> have you been, met me, John? <laughs> no, I know that you know about this stuff. Uh, I just want to read you one sentence from this book to give you a taster. This is from page 283. 
The zirconium isotope is radioactive and goes on to produce niobium and then molybdenum. I likewise Mo- molybdenum, John. Molybdenum. Likewise, it's the radio- and molybdenum. <laughs> likewise, the radioactive tellurium isotope decays first into iodine, then xenon, then cesium, and finally barium. And I'm like. Obviously, we all know that. Was it like that all the way through? You're going to explain nuclear physics as we go along. I would do, Angela, but I'm just what, concerned about time. What I love about you reading that sentence as well, John, is you take the very sort of middle class white male attitude to, if I say it loudly and with confidence, it doesn't matter if I've got all the letters in the wrong order. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I just whiz through it. No one dares disagree with me. <laughs> no, I, I would go into the physics, but it's just a time issue, yeah, Angela. I don't want to have problem, to explain all of that for everyone who doesn't understand it all. So yeah. I just take it. As read, uh, uh, we'll give it. You, know, you and I and all our listeners completely understand everything about nuclear physics. Absolutely. So we'll just concentrate on the human stories of people like Robert Oppenheimer. And the thing about a film like Oppenheimer is that it it makes it seem like the atomic bomb was created by this one man. Yes. But of course, he's just one important part of an incredibly complex series of scientific discoveries or breakthroughs over a really long time. Yeah, exactly. And we'll be trying to cover all of those. So, for example, the neutron was discovered in 1937 by British explorer Sir Gilbert Neutron when his ship was blown off course in the Arctic Ocean. (laughs) Johnny's talking uh, rubbish, as usual. Um, The neutron was discovered in 1932 by James Chadwick, later Sir James Chadwick, a British scientist who would later be deeply involved in the Manhattan Project uh, to develop the atomic bomb. Yes, the splitting of the Atom was achieved by an Irishman, Ernest Walton from Dungarvan. Let's be honest, there's not a lot to do in Dungarvan. So he moved to England uh, where he was working with a Kiwi physicist, Ernest Rutherford, later Lord Rutherford, and they'd been given this atomic to look after and they went and split it in two. Yeah, and of course Rutherford, famous uh, as a pointless answer, Rutherfordium is almost always a pointless answer on Pointless because he had an element named after him. Oh, so there we are. Rutherfordian. I remember that next time. Good work thing to remember. Right. And of course, none of this could have happened if our friend Albert Einstein had not written down E equals MC squared uh, while all his student mates were out getting pissed and putting traffic cones on their heads. Yes. So um, the idea of an atomic bomb was familiar to the public through the writings of H.G. Wells, actually, who, writing in 1914 in his novel The World Set Free, is thought to be the first person to use the phrase atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. He was writing very soon after Einstein had uh, turned the world of physics on its head. And in fact, in Gulliver's Travels, published in 1726, there's a scientist trying to create a bomb that can blow up the whole world, uh, which, like all ridiculous satire, eventually just becomes current affairs. (laughs) So depressing. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, Angela, the possibility of an atomic bomb really only becomes uh, a realistic possibility with the discovery of nuclear fission. Mm. Now, as I've said, we'll take this rare. They'll listen and understand nuclear fission. Yeah, who doesn't? I mean, Basically, you on. need uranium, but just not normal uranium. You've got not the stuff you get down the hardware shop. It's special type, 235, and then you need a lot of heavy water and carrying bottles of that to the lab is really hard work, as you can imagine. People might remember, we talked about this quite a lot in our episode on radium, yeah. about them getting the uranium from the mines in Czechoslovakia. And yeah. also, I think it's worth mentioning, one of the teams that discovered nuclear fission featured Lisa Meitner, yes. who was pretty much written out the history. She wasn't included in the Nobel Prize for right. nuclear fission and all of that. And she worked with Marie Sklodowska curie when they were doing x-rays for soldiers in World War I. Right. And she was called, um, was it, uh, Einstein called her the German... Marie Curie. Yes. So um, I just think she's worth a little mention worth a because mention. she. The, they, story, the yeah. story sort of 
starts, I mean, I have a slight left out of this because the story starts in 1938, 39 mm. when um, her role is uh, diminished. Yeah, well, I mean, all you really need to know is that uranium is the only naturally occurring fissile isotope. Absolutely. I hope that makes sense yeah, now. Even Tina the Cockapoo knows exactly. that. I mean, you've got to enrich your uranium, Angela. Yeah. I mean, that's basic. Ordinary uranium, rubbish. Yeah, enrich it with one of those uranium enrichers. You can get them from the Midline at Lidl. Yeah. Or I think now you can use an air fryer. True, yeah. Um, it's up to you. You know, do try this at home, listeners, if you want to make your own nuclear reactor or atomic bomb or learn everything you need to know from this podcast. Absolutely. So when they announced that they had made the discovery of nuclear fission in Germany, nobody thought this could be possible. It was like they'd broken a basic immutable law of physics. So a young American professor at Berkeley pronounced the reaction impossible and quickly set about proving so on his blackboard. But he was soon persuaded by the evidence. And within a few days, a crude design for an atomic bomb appeared on the blackboard in his office. And that professor was J. Robert Oppenheimer. Dun, dun, dun. Was Barbie. No. <laughs> what is Barbie? No. <laughs> What's incredible, of course, about all of this is the historical timing. Yeah, yeah. It's 1939. We've yeah. just unlocked the formula for the world's most powerful weapon, a bomb that could destroy whole cities. Uh, by the way, anything in the news at the moment? Uh, you know, oh, no. No, just the biggest global conflict ever known to mankind. Oh, well, I don't really follow politics. I'm too busy doing my science. Exactly. I hadn't what, really noticed. That's exactly Sorry. What it was like. And all the research <laughs> was being published in scientific journals because the war had not actually broken out yet. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't the state sponsoring all this research. It was happening in the universities. So the Germans were blithely sharing their nuclear breakthroughs and the Brits were publishing theirs. And it wasn't until September 39 that they suddenly thought, oh, hang on a minute, maybe we shouldn't be giving all this groundbreaking research to the enemy. So uh, it was actually the 1st of September 1939. Quite an auspicious date, that yes, is. <laughs> the Germans set up the uh, Euroverein. How do I say that, Angela? Uranverein. Uranverein, which means nuclear club. It actually means uranium club. Uranium club, all right. Yeah. Well, I did a sort of loose translation. But it was a bit like a club. There were various institutions and research projects that were not really brought together or amalgamated into Mm. one big institution, which meant that progress was not as effective as it might have been. So Nazis, of course, had to grapple with this uncomfortable fact that all of the scientists owed a huge debt to Albert Einstein. And of course, to their mind, he can't have done incredible work because he was Jewish. Uh, So instead, they said that he'd stolen the research from Aryan scientists and um, in fact, many of the top physicists in Germany at the beginning of the 1930s were Jewish, but they'd fled for obvious reasons when the Nazis came to power and Germany lost about a quarter of its top physicists this way. But German scientist Werner Heisenberg, winner of the 1932 Nobel Prize for Physics for his work on quantum mechanics, did not leave. He was a German patriot, not necessarily a supporter of the Nazis, uh, so engulfed in his scientific work, um, perhaps because the world of physics had been so dominated by Jewish scientists, he was attacked in the press as a white Jew, an Aryan who was too sympathetic to Jews. It looked like he might not be able to remain in post. So he did the only thing that a brilliant scientist can do. Um, Heisenberg got his mum to intervene on his behalf. Oh, got his mum to write a note. No, his mum was friends with um, Heinrich Himmler's mum. My God. So she had a word. And sure enough, Himmler launched an investigation. Heisenberg was interviewed or rather repeatedly interrogated. And then he was cleared. And soon he would be Germany's leading nuclear scientist. So thanks, Mum, for sorting that out for me. My mum would have done that. Yeah. She thought, I've heard of your mum. I can imagine her marching down there to have a word with Himmler. I'm not saying to Himmler about my son, John. So the only only reason I'd heard about Heisenberg is because that play about him by Michael Frayn. The only reason I've heard about Heisenberg is because it's the name that 
the pseudonym Walter White uses oh, in Breaking right. Bad. Yeah. No, that's not the well, only Copenhagen yeah. was the play that was on at the National Theatre right. a couple of decades ago. I have to tell you, Angela, it's nothing like Noises Off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those people saw Frayne's hilarious farce about the play going wrong, rushing along to see Copenhagen at the National. Oh, it's a bit different. This isn't slapstick at all. <laughs> it's a really long debate about nuclear physics and morality. Yeah. Is, you can actually listen to, you can listen to the play online if you can find it. So, uh, you're the, right. yeah, no, it's good. It's good. The Radio <laughs> 3 production, so uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, he's in the lead. And it's basically an extended debate between three characters on the morality of being the Nazi's chief scientist trying to develop a nuclear bomb for Hitler. And the debate centres around the pretty bold claim made by Heisenberg and the other scientists after the war that they didn't resign or flee the country because they wanted to stay in post and fail to get the Nazis, oh, the atom yes. bomb. Oh, yes. You see, if I resigned, <laughs> they might have got someone who would have succeeded. So I thought, if I just stay and do it badly, yeah. that's why I stayed. So yeah. I could deliberately just drag my feet and never give Hitler the nuclear weapon that would win him the war. So yeah. you should be thanking me, exactly. really. Well, Frame plays around with the idea of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and how we can never be certain about his morality either, which is very clever and interesting. But for my money, Angela, it's all bollocks. <laughs> Heisenberg wasn't deliberately not developing a bomb, but it's a better look for Heisenberg than, no, you were an artsy collaborator and you didn't win the race for the atom bomb because you're a bit of shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quite. Um, anyway, the fact that so many German physicists had had a head start on nuclear physics in 1939 was pretty worrying to anyone outside of Germany who understood what these new scientific breakthroughs meant for the whole world. Yeah. Um, so in an effort to get Roosevelt's attention, the American physicists, they get Einstein to write a letter to the president to explain the power of this theoretical bomb and why it was important that the Nazis shouldn't be the only world power to have one. Right. And um, Einstein didn't hear back for ages, but finally, two months and a couple more letters later, FDR agrees to set up an advisory committee on uranium. Meanwhile, Hitler's invading Denmark and Norway, and Norway has a hydroelectric plant producing heavy water. Copenhagen was a major centre of nuclear physics, and the uranium from mines in Czechoslovakia is being taken to Germany. So all these scientists in America were like, no, no, not a committee. No, we, we need massive funding to set up research labs to develop atomic bomb. And the White House are like, I'm sure the committee will be interested to hear all of that in due course. <laughs> Uh, Einstein wasn't actually part of the eventual American project. Um, he's a bit too famous to be undercover in a secret yes, project. Um, plus, they're all a bit worried about his pacifist leanings. Yes. He famously said, if I had known what they would do with my work, I would have been a locksmith. That's right. Yes. And in the movie Oppenheim, Einstein is played by Tom Conti, which is a bit weird for a generation that mostly recognises him as Miranda Hart's dad. <laughs> you sort of expect Einstein to keep saying to Patricia Hodge, Black eyes, absolute death trap. <laughs> um, that might be a good place to take our first break while we go and um, uh, test some nuclear fission and uh, see how the uh, uranium is um, doing whatever it's going to do. In the air fryer. In the air fryer. <laughs> Back after this. See you in a bit. Hello and welcome back. So, this point in the story, the country that was actually furthest down the road in terms of nuclear weapons research was good old Blighty, Great Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Tube Alloys Project, as it was called, the name was deliberately bland and misleading, was the first nuclear weapons research lab set up because of worries about a Nazi superbomb. 
Uh, as we said, the atom was first split in Manchester and the neutron was discovered at Cambridge University. And Britain was a haven for many of the Jewish physicists fleeing Germany or Nazi-occupied Europe. Refugees played a major part in British military research during the war. Of course, today, Suella Breverman would just try and lock them up on a barge. Yeah, quite. <laughs> um, we talked about the Tubal Alloys Project and, and these refugee scientists quite a bit in our Agent Sonia episode, Indeed, if you did. remember. So you can go back and have a listen to that. It was one thing, of course, to fund academic research into nuclear physics, but Britain did not at this point have the resources to build atomic reactors or produce heavy water or get hold of the amounts of uranium that was needed to build an actual bomb, even if they had worked out how yes. to do it. However, uh -huh. in October 1941, FDR approved an American atomic programme. Even though the USA was not actually at war with anyone yet, and the perceived nuclear threat was from Germany, not Japan. There were research and testing sites all over the US, but as things got more serious, it became necessary to build an entire city in the desert to build the first bomb. It needed to be remote and secure so that scientists could be kept apart from the general populace. So a site was found in New Mexico, based on a place where Oppenheimer had spent time as a child. And this was to become the famous Manhattan Project. That's right. Uh, it was named after um, its original offices, which were just on Broadway near New York City Hall. There were some nuclear offices, nuclear research offices there. All some shit. Um, <laughs> all some shit. All some shit. <laughs> so the place actually was a total secret. The only postal address was a, uh, a you know, post office box in Santa Fe. But at its climax, I found this incredible. It employed 130,000 people. That's a, bit, that's a city. That's, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So that included partners and children of all the scientists and the builders and the, you know. Um, uh, but they knew that they would not get the best scientists to move to the desert unless they could take their families with them. Must have led to some pretty difficult domestic discussions. Must yeah, I know women absolutely. were sort of, you know, do as you're told. But darling, we're taking the children out of school and you and I are moving to a yet unbuilt town in the middle of the New Mexico desert. <laughs> Why? What for? Can't tell you that. Complete secret. Oh, well, no problem. Yeah, fine. I'll uproot my life. I'm completely convinced I should leave with my friends, leave my colleagues behind if it's something that you can't even tell me about. Why it's, not? I mean, yes, must, that let's must, go. That must I'll have pack. happened. <laughs> um, this city included the largest building in the world at the time. There were bars, restaurants, schools, hospitals, places of worship, and a massive tannoy system. One of the earliest announcements was uh, the woman on the public address system repeatedly paging Werner Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg, who was, of course, the German leader of their atomic program, um, and eventually somebody informed her that she might be the victim of a prank. Oh, <laughs> oh it's a bit mean, isn't it? Oh. Uh, and all of this uh, was because of a belief that Germany was a couple of years ahead in the race for a nuclear bomb. And having seen what Hitler was capable of in terms of, you know, the viciousness of his sort of war machine, the project proceeded with a real sense of urgency and terror that they would fail to create a bomb before the Nazis had one, which would obviously easily win them the war. Um, in fact, Angela, things were not going well in well, Germany. Well, no, they weren't really, were no. they? Um, they did manage one notable first, which was the world's first nuclear accident. Brilliant. What a claim. <laughs> I know, well done then. Uh, their prototype nuclear reactor in Leipzig blew apart. Glowing uranium powder shot up to the six-metre ceiling and the apparatus heated up to a 1,000 degrees. And this was before health and safety went mad, Absolutely. of course, John. Yes. And it ended the Leipzig uranium project. 
And with Britain being completely bankrupted by the war and all the major cities being bombed flat by the Luftwaffe, it was decided that the British research project should become merged with the American efforts and their money, presumably, um, that was being established under the leadership of Robert Oppenheimer. Yes, so this is the Quebec Agreement in 1943 between Roosevelt and Churchill. Uh, and they agreed to share nuclear research throughout and after the war, uh, which is significant. Such was the input of uh, British research, or rather British-funded research, because there was lots of, it was a very international team, uh, that FDR and Churchill agreed that no atomic weapon would ever be used without the other ally being consulted and being in agreement. Of course, when it came to it in August 1945, Roosevelt was dead and Churchill was out of power and the Americans claimed to have no knowledge of any such agreement. Yeah. Oh, did they make that? Oh, they didn't tell us. Sorry, they didn't pass it on. So, in fact, the memorandum had been misfiled by someone in Washington who thought that tube alloys was something to do with tubes, John, or, or alloys. That's true. And not... <laughs> Nuclear, nuclear bombs. Yeah, we can't find any record of it. Yeah, yeah, sorry, no. It wasn't, they didn't call it the nuclear bomb project. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, if you watch Oppenheimer, you sort of get the impression that the only British input to the Manhattan Project was to s- supply the Soviet spies. <laughs> sort of a fair point in a way. Yeah. Um, there was a, a problem that all these state secrets were being shared by people who were not American citizens. Yes. And in fact, some of them uh, had been born in Germany, but there was quite a good reason why they hadn't stayed there. Yeah. Um, but there were, of course, plenty of spies inside the Manhattan Project. In fact, turn your back for five minutes. There was a bloke in a furry hat leaning into the flowers and going, testing, testing, the bear will be swimming in the Volga tomorrow. Over. With a French accent. Weird, <laughs> isn't it? Well, Fina, there everyone's <laughs> got their over. spies. How dare you? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but no, actually, the Nazis didn't have any spies in the Manhattan Project. Mm. Um, unlike the Soviets, who had lots of communist sympathisers who were really brilliant at physics, but not so smart that they hadn't worked out that helping Stalin might not actually put them on the side of the good guys. One of the most effective of these spies was Lorna Cohen. Leonard Cohen? Blimey, I didn't expect him to turn up in this. Not, not Leonard Cohen, Angela. <laughs> Lona Cohen. How do you say it? Lona, not Leonard. So Lona was working at Los Alamos, singing Hallelujah and writing depressing <laughs> lyrics. You know. um, and when it was all over, she smuggled diagrams out of the high security compound by folding them up and putting them under all the tissues in a box of Kleenex. Uh, but then suddenly, a train was being checked by FBI agents. She's pretending to be a silly girl who couldn't open her bag on the platform and got all flustered and the conductor came over to help. She passed in the box of tissues while she used both of her hands to open the bag. Uh, And then her belongings were searched on the train and later on the conductor found her and said, you forgot your box of tissue. Brilliant. Just hands her back the secrets. Wonderful. Um, After the war, she lived in Ricelip, obviously, Obviously, hot by the spies. Always, Um, always. And she was arrested in Britain in 1961, sent to prison and finally exchanged for a British spy and lived in Moscow. And she featured on a Soviet stamp. Wow. Yeah, other spies included Klaus Fuchs, a Jewish communist who'd fled the Nazis in 1933 and moved to England. He became a British citizen and became the most shocking name, really, to be revealed uh, as a spy the whole time. Not just because his surname's nearly a swear word. Oh, we could just say Fuchs over Fuchs. and over again. Uh, yeah, and we know who his handler was, who his yeah, runner was, was Agent Sonia. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it should be said that these spies weren't, undermining the Manhattan Project. They were brilliant scientists. They were helping allies get the bomb. It was just that they believed, we talked about this a lot in Agent Sonia, they believed that out of sort of fairness, Russia should have the information as well. And there is an argument that they actually, you know, there's peace because of the 
Russians having the bomb as well. Yes. Um, you know, because we know that the Americans were willing to use it because they did. Yes. So, um, yes. you know, and that they can be and, quite... And, and Russia was an ally belligerent. at that point, of yes. course. Not, yeah. the, not an enemy. Exactly. Uh, Oppenheimer himself was approached in the so-called Chevalier incident which would be used against him after the war. Uh, and he was perhaps a little naive in his failure to report or act upon the approach. Yeah, but like you say, Russia was an ally at the time. And Oppenheimer's wife, Kitty, had been a member of the Communist Party, as his brother had been. Uh, he'd vocally supported the Loyalist forces in the Spanish Civil War. Oh. All of this would be used against him after the war, of course, when the Cold War was raging and anti-communist paranoia was at its height and yes. Russia was no longer an ally. Yes. But at the time they were, and I think it's important, you know, we have hindsight, they didn't. Of course, yes. I mean, one thing that became a bit of a giveaway is that all the scientific journals stopped printing anything about quantum physics or nuclear mm. fission or any of the research that had been building such a momentum in the run-up to the war. So one Soviet scientist realised this meant it was all proceeding in total secret, which meant that it must be directed towards a nuclear weapon. So he wrote to Stalin to alert him about this. And Stalin was like, do you mind? I'm busy with enough problems right now. Somebody executed all my best generals. I mean, who would do something like that? <laughs> so there was a project set up in the Soviet Union by Kershatov. Say it confidently, actually. By Kershatov. Kershatov. <laughs> Yes, I, I owe to have the confidence of John O'Farrell. <laughs> Kershitov. Oh, he's not like Kershitov. <laughs> we'll oh, yeah, I sound like I'm is. sneezing yeah, yeah. now. <laughs> Kershitov, bless you. Yeah. Um, but it was given very low priority and, you know, finding enough uranium is always going to be impossible in a tiny little country like Russia. Yes, yes. Well, the, the German project, meanwhile, depended on the production of heavy water at a hydroelectric power plant at Telemark in Norway, mm. now occupied by Germany, of course. The plant was attacked by the Allies, who knew what was going on there, and the Norwegian resistance movement. Operation Grouse was this bold but utterly disastrous attack by British special forces. Their gliders crashed, and all the participants were either killed in the crashes or captured and executed by the Gestapo. They're all named in the book by Jim Bagger, which is good. Another raid by Norwegian resistance fighters parachuted into the area by the RAF was more successful, and it did stop the production of heavy water for a few months. Another plan had been made to assassinate Heisenberg, who, even in the middle of a world war, was at liberty to leave Germany, give lectures in neutral Switzerland and yeah. so on. And the plan was to go to his lecture. And if the secret agent, who was a man called Mo Berg, he was a, a former professional baseball player, if he deduced from what Heisenberg was saying, because obviously baseball players experts are experts on, on nuclear famously, physics. Famously. If he deduced from what Heisenberg was saying that Germany was close to acquiring a nuclear bomb, then he was to shoot him dead uh, and either try and make a run for it or to uh, bite into the cyanide pill he'd been given that was in his pocket. Of course. And he listened to Heisenberg and didn't think he sounded like he knew more than the Manhattan Project did. And he even walked with him for a bit outside. And, of course, Heisenberg has no idea that the man he's chatting away with has been sent to probably kill him. Um, but they just ended up saying goodnight and both went on their way with Heisenberg none the wiser. Which That's intense. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what an awkward conversation. Yeah, so, do quite. Do you come to Zurich much? just assassinate people sometimes just yeah exactly so uh, what are you doing here oh no, nothing nothing, nothing to here. just some nuclear physics but nothing important oh, a cyanide pill in my pocket and a yeah. revolver <laughs> in fact uh, by 1943 the German project had sort of ground to a halt Albert Speer who was in charge of munitions didn't want to tell Hitler about the possibility of a weapon that he might not be able to deliver straight away <laughs> no because he'd be like give me it now you know yeah um 
And in any case, anything that was going to take another five years was no use to the Nazis, given the trouble they were in in Stalingrad. Yeah. And British intelligence never quite put two and two together about the cessation of information about atomic research being out yeah. there and, and what how that meant that a weapon was close to being developed. Or not. They yeah. Or not. Yeah. Um, they were fully aware of the development of the V1 and V2 bombs, for example, but the absence of intelligence about nuclear research didn't lead anyone to think that it must have just paid people out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Manhattan Project continued at a pace with, yeah. no one, no, with no one working this out. So D-Day happens in 1944. The Allies occupied Strasbourg. They uncover papers that basically confirm that the Germans were getting nowhere near getting a bomb. Um, but as I said, none of this slowed down the research and expenditure in New Mexico. Uh, and gradually, with the war being won in Europe, thoughts turned to using the atomic bomb against Japan. Mm. Roosevelt would not live to see uh, the use of the atomic bomb, of course. That would be his current vice president, Truman, who'd know nothing of the whole project. In fact, before he was vice president, Truman had made a name for himself with a special Senate committee known as the Truman Committee, which kept on and on about wasteful expenditure in the military. And he kept saying, these sums don't add up. Where's all this money going? Sounds <laughs> very amiss with these accounts. Oh. And Roosevelt's like, oh, what's a couple of billion dollars here and there? Don't worry, your pretty little head. Probably just they bought some more post-it notes. That's what, about two billion yeah. pounds of dollars on post-it notes. And Truman... Well, he certainly found out where the money had gone when he became president, Excellent. put it that way. Excellent. What a shock you must have had. Um, <laughs> the Russians were now only a couple of months behind the Manhattan Project in terms of assembling the theory that, that they were being drip-fed by their spies. And by now, they were occupying Germany and uncovering more secrets and resources uh, that were accumulated by the Germans. They also found piles of uranium and they sent 300 tonnes of it back to Russia, enough to support development of their first nuclear reactor. Dun, dun. Uh, I think that's the time for a break, isn't it? It is. Let's take our second break there and we'll see you after these announcements. As you may know, We Are History is not Angela and my main gig, uh, but it's a complete passion project that we love making. However, we've only been able to make this many series because of the support we've had from you our listeners and subscribers. So thank you. And in particular, we want to give a big shout out to... Ingvild Lundanis. I hope I've said that right. John deliberately put them in the order that I would get to say the name that I might get. I hope it's right, Ingvild. Ingvild. Julian Roche. Jackie Hutchinson. Anna Hammond. Paul Gardiner, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. And you too can do the same if you go to patreon.com slash wearehistory. Excellent. And welcome back to the podcast from our final break. This is the final section of this week's episode. And we are now back in America. Oh, what's happening there, Angela? Huh? What's happening there, Angela? What's happening in America? (laughs) Well, they're finally ready to test this terrifying new weapon, and uh, find out whether or not it works. Yeah, because if it doesn't work, just take it back to the shop and get their money back. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, what's the worst that can happen, really? Uh, (laughs) The world's first ever nuclear explosion took place on the 16th of July, 1945, in the New Mexico desert. Jornada del Muerta, Dead Man's Journey, which seems kind of appropriate. Yes, this was the so-called Trinity Test, Named after a sonnet by John Donne, obviously. You must have guessed that already. Um, And this was a massive leap into the dark because no one really knew what would happen if you unleashed the basic power of the universe. They 
could not, this is true, they could not be completely sure that this would not cause the entire atmosphere of planet Earth to combust. If there was even just 0.0001% of doubt about whether it's going to cause the end of the universe, I don't think I'd press that yeah. button. I know, so the non-scientists were like, wait, what? Oh, we think it probably won't. The whole Earth oh, probably. probably won't burn up. Almost, oh. almost certainly won't. Yeah, I mean, it's not as good as definitely won't. That's what you want from a scientist. Yeah, they definitely yeah, won't. Yeah, we've done yeah, the checks. We've yeah. done the science. Yeah, I mean, we've done the test and we might detonate this bomb and it might possibly set off a chain reaction or ignite the entire atmosphere. It's like, oh, why, why? it's not the end of the world. Okay, well, it is <laughs> the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, well, let's just see what happens. We can always learn from our mistakes. Absolute madness. So they built this sort of water tower in the middle of the desert and kind of assembled the bomb on top of that. I mean, I don't know, like, yeah. uh, imagining it's from Ikea. Yeah. Okay, you got the instructions? I oh, no, don't, don't, don't just bother with that. It's going to be pretty obvious, isn't it? No, no, you've got the wrong one. It says attached toggle A to retaining spigot D using the Allen kit. Oh, no, what have I done? It's all right. Yeah, exactly. What's the worst That's that can exactly happen? That's exactly what it was like, Angela. Um, many of the scientists who had been working on this for years were gathered at a suitable uh, distance. They've been provided with welder's glass through Brilliant. which to look at the glare. Fine. And they lay down as the blast detonated. And this is quite a powerful scene in the movie, actually. But um, there was an incredible silent flash uh, because you, you'd think it would go bang, but of course, the mm. light is so much faster. Uh, the event took place before dawn, so it's incredible, the light of a thousand suns. Then after that, the blast and the noise was like nothing that anyone had ever experienced before. And later, uh, Oppenheimer cited the sacred Hindu text, the Bhagavad Vita, Now I am become death, the destroyer of the worlds. And um, how how was the special water tower that they built? Did oh, that it's stand in a up terrible to... state, Angela. <laughs> I mean, after being at the epicenter of the world's first nuclear explosion, in fact, it was beyond repair. Oh, I mean, it's yeah. like, no, oh no, you've had, oh no, yeah, you've had oh, some cowboys in here. That's not gonna. <laughs> we can't fix that now. You're better <laughs> off getting a new one. In fact, there were actually thousands of people living in that part of New Mexico, Native Americans and ranchers. Uh, but no one would understand about the effects of nuclear fallout until after Hiroshima. Mm. Uh, radiation polluted their crops, their water, their animals, their homes. Uh, and there were increased cancers and premature deaths that had never really been acknowledged or compensated. No, well, quite. Um, the rush had been to get this test done by the time that the American president and the British prime minister had met with Stalin at the Potsdam conference. Yes. Those of you who uh, watched my little uh, Patreon subscribers who watched my trip to Berlin would have seen all the photos I took yes. at Potsdam, at uh, the Sicilian Hof, where it took place, Potsdam conference. I'm, anyway, I've gone off on one, but no, I really good. enjoyed my time there. Um, after the success of the test, Truman was able to lean over to Stalin at Potsdam and say, by the way, uh, we have developed a bomb of immense power. And Stalin had to do this big surprise face, like, oh, no, I really had no idea you'd develop two separate types of atomic bombs at your secret research centre in Los Alamos, New Mexico. I mean, I'm I'm shocked, I tell you, shocked. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. So, yeah, so the war in Europe had, of course, been won and the Allies overran and searched the advanced weapons labs of the Nazis. They discovered how little progress the German programme had made. And the whole point of the Manhattan Project, the tube alloys research, the 120,000 people working in the desert had been to get a bomb before the Nazis did. Uh, but it turned out they were in a race in which the other team were barely taking part. Yeah, were, exactly. yeah. So, in fact, the Allies spent more money trying to find out what the Nazis had discovered than the Nazis spent discovering it over the course of the whole war. 
Um, in fact, the defeat of the Nazis created a bit of a crisis at Los Alamos uh, because they'd created a bomb to counter whatever Hitler did, as we said. And now they just felt like they'd created this super weapon and only America had it. And they felt this huge responsibility, as you would. Yeah, well, uh, quite. Um, <laughs> there was a sense that the weapon they developed was so terrible, it should be demonstrated to the world on a desert island. And America should say, look, this exists. We're never going to use it. And no one else must ever use this either. And the United Nations should ensure this remains the case. Yeah, that's what the scientists would do. Yes, yes. And lots of scientists signed this petition. Um, but of course, it never even got passed up to Harry Truman. And it remained a secret until the 60s, because that's not how American yes. politics works. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, uh, all the German nuclear scientists were captured and taken to England. They didn't want to leave them in Germany in case the Russians got hold of them. Uh, and they were put up in this English country house uh, where they were kept in some comfort with butlers and cooks and everything. And their rooms were obviously bugged uh, as the Allies sought to establish what nuclear secrets they could glean from the German nuclear program that caused so much fear throughout the war. Yeah, and of course the Germans had no idea about the Manhattan Project and how close the Allies were to testing a bomb. They were convinced that they themselves were at the absolute forefront of nuclear physics and that they were the world leaders. And all they've basically done is build a nuclear reactor. And the Manhattan Project had done that ages before. Yes. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, in the White House and at the top of the army, uh, there was lots of debate about whether or not the bomb should be used against Japan. All the intelligence was that Japan was never going to surrender, that the invasion of the Japanese mainland would have taken hundreds of thousands of American lives and might drag on for years. And having spent $2 billion developing this bomb, there was the prospect of dropping it on Japan with the message that war would be dropped if the emperor did not surrender. Also, Russia was looking to join the war against Japan and was making territorial claims of her own against uh, Japan. So a swift end to the war was of extra importance. So a list of possible cities was drawn up. Kyoto was originally on the list, but was taken off for its cultural and historical significance. Um, and also because the US Secretary had gone there on his honeymoon. It's got to be, so, yeah, you, you don't know. want to blow oh, those up nice memories bombs. there. Same, same with me with uh, Tobago. Yeah, right, oh, no. right. Same with me and... Uh, Oh, Norfolk. Uh, <laughs> I got married right. during a pandemic. So um, they did discuss dropping the first bomb on the emperor's palace, but they were unsure how that would play in terms of post-war reconstruction and relations with Japan. Yeah, it would annoy them, wouldn't it? Might, yeah. might piss yeah. them off a bit. Uh, so the team with the bomb sailed out of San Francisco Harbour. The captain of the American warship, the Indianapolis, had no idea what he was carrying. He saw the crate and said... I thought this country had sworn against the use of germ warfare. That's what he thought Side it was. note, actually, yeah. after they had dropped off the bomb to Tinian Island, is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah. Tinian Island? Um, the Indianapolis was sunk by a Japanese submarine and hundreds of US sailors jumped ship where they were prey to white-tipped sharks. And in the film Jaws, this horrific episode is what's being referred to when Robert Shaw's character... Quint talks about it. That's right. A very memorable scene yeah. on the night before, the night yeah. before battle, as it were. Yes. And then the bomb was loaded on the, to the plane named Enola Gay uh, after the song by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. The plane had practiced the speedy manoeuvre required not to be destroyed by the very bomb it was delivering. And the bomb on Hiroshima was dropped on August the 6th, 1945. It's estimated that between 70 and 80,000 people were killed by the flash and shockwave. Many did not die straight away, but died within a week of their injuries. Uh, so now, Angela, we could do a whole mm. podcast on Hiroshima and what it did and the decision to drop it, the morals of that. Absolutely. Um, but it wasn't actually the most lethal attack of World War II. Firebombing of Dresden and Tokyo killed more. But uh, quite apart from the terrible loss of life, 
everything was changed politically and militarily after Hiroshima. Yeah, Stalin was furious when he heard the news and you don't want to piss off Stalin. No, no. He bangs his fists and demands to know why the Soviet Union had not developed an atomic bomb and his advisors were like, well, the thing is, Comrade Stalin, we were sort of quite busy facing the largest invasion in history and having all our factories and our communications destroyed by the Luftwaffe, and that sort of stole our focus a bit. <laughs> <That's> no excuse. <laughs> you, are, you should have asked for the resources to build a nuclear bomb. Get onto it right away. I want one by the end of the week. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so in England, the German nuclear scientists were still locked up in their country house. They heard the news about Hiroshima on the radio, and they were absolutely flabbergasted. They couldn't believe how far behind they had been, um, how irrelevant they suddenly were. In a moment, they went from thinking they were immense value to the world to realising that they were total losers. It's a bit like with my first musical opening in New York in the same season as Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> so that is when they formulated this line that they hadn't actually wanted to develop the bomb anyway, that they deliberately not succeeded because yeah. deep down they didn't want Adolf Hitler to have atomic weapons because yes. the, the brand of Nazi was not looking so good after the discovery of the concentration camps and the destruction of most of Europe. So yes. like, yeah, we did it on purpose, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so Michael Frayn gives this sort of a certain amount of entertainment in the play, which is worth listening to but I don't buy it. Anyway, in Japan, um, it took some time to comprehend what had just happened. All communications were obviously destroyed in the blast and the diehards in the Japanese military were in denial about the existence of the weapon. Then something unexpected was noticed. Doctors were admitting hundreds and then thousands of people with a high fever and they suspected typhoid or dysentery. But these were, of course, the first symptoms of radiation poisoning that was to kill another 60,000 before the end of the year. Wow. Yeah. The Japanese asked the Russians to mediate to establish some sort of peace that was not an unconditional surrender. But instead, Russia declared war on Japan mm. and Soviet troops poured over the border to occupy Manchuria and uh, all the Japanese positions there. Um, so people don't realise that, that Russia actually declared war on Japan between the two atomic bombs that were dropped. Um, but after the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki on August the 9th, the emperor himself intervened to force a decision on the terms of Japanese surrender. America had actually softened its position on unconditional surrender and accepted a wording that would permit the emperor to remain as supreme ruler. And in fact, the, uh, the US had been preparing a third bomb for delivery on August the 17th, although it was thought by now Truman had been unwilling to sanction it. So the emperor recorded a radio message to be broadcast to the Japanese nation announcing the surrender. And it was the first time most Japanese people had ever even heard his voice. Yeah, the world was irrevocably changed and the relief that the war was over was tempered with the knowledge that a terrible new weapon of war had been released into the world. Yeah, there was this brief window when it might have been possible to ban these weapons forever. Um, but in reality, it was never in any of the major players' interests. A UN committee came up with a proposal that no more weapons be created, which meant that America would keep its monopoly. So the Russians were never going to agree to that. And we've seen that the Americans were willing to use yeah, them and yeah. probably would have used them again. Yeah. So with the coming of peace came the end of the collaboration between Britain and America that had done so much to create the bomb. Impoverished Britain undertook to develop a bomb of its own, especially after the American Secretary of State was so rude to Ernest Bevin that the new British Foreign Secretary said, we've got to have this. I don't mind for myself, but I don't want any other Foreign Secretary of this country to be talked at or to by the Secretary of State in the United States 
as I just have in my discussions with Mr. Burns. Wow. We've got to have this thing over here. Whatever it costs, we've got to have the Union Jack on top of it. So basically, if uh, Burns hadn't been an arsehole to yeah. Bevin, we might not have nuclear <laughs> yeah, bombs. Yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> but there was only so much uranium ore in the world, of course, and America decided it needed all of it. And the Marshall Plan to rescue Western Europe's economies had been put into place, and it was suggested to Britain that they had to surrender their stockpiles of uranium ore to the USA. And Attlee had no choice but to agree. They needed the money from yeah. America. Uh, so Britain's nuclear program was put back by many years and the UK was not to become the world's second nuclear power. Yes. In the Soviet Union, they resolved to make a bomb that was a direct copy of the bomb developed at Los Alamos, since they already had the blueprints for that in the bottom of the box of Kleenex tissues. <laughs> Stalin's most brutal henchman, Beria, oversaw the Russian program and was very suspicious of the scientists. Uh, they were put on incentivization schemes such as create an atom bomb or you will be shot. Yeah. When Beria went to check on the progress at their lab and they proudly showed him that their nuclear reactor was operational and they let him hear the click of the neutron counter and he said, is that it? Nothing more. And they were like, that's amazing. Listen to the noise of the nuclear chain reaction. That's what you're listening to. And he thought they were taking the piss. He thought they were trying to pull the wool over his eyes and make a fall out of him. Yeah. So uh, as the Cold War grew frostier, the Americans draw up plans to launch a first strike against the Soviet Union before it gets its own bomb. They had a plan to use the USA's entire stock of atom bombs against the USSR in one massive attack striking 70 Soviet cities with 133 atomic bombs, targeting urban industrial centres, government offices, the oil industry, transport networks and power stations. It was estimated there would be about 4 million casualties. And um, listeners who don't know much about the history of the Cold War will be reassured to know that this didn't happen. <laughs> uh, you know, just in case you were wondering. Um, yeah. But even the fact that that plan was made is pretty scary. Yeah, yeah. On the 3rd of September 1949, an American weather reconnaissance flyer off the Kamchatka Peninsula tracked a radioactive air mass as it drifted east. It floated across America and finally over the Atlantic, where it was also detected by British monitors. So the Russians had detonated their first atomic bomb on the 29th of August. Beria had rushed to inform Stalin, who was annoyed to be woken up with the news because he knew already. <laughs> Yeah, Beria handed out honours to his atomic scientists in the reverse order of, of their likely fate had they failed. So the ones that he would have been most likely to shoot if they'd failed got the highest honours and the ones that would have just received prison, prison sentences, they got lesser medals. That's fair. That's, That's how fair. you work it out, yeah. You've got a current stick, current stick, you know. It's <laughs> yeah, strict but fair, Beria. He ends up getting uh, shot himself, of course, after yeah, Stalin yeah. dies. Um, so now uh, the Americans only had the advantage in terms of numbers of bombs. So the nuclear arms race was properly underwear. <laughs> Sorry. It was properly underwear. It was That's properly a technical underwear. Term. Underway. I've just got underwear Sorry, on my brain, really Angela. Laugh. I don't know what. Truman <laughs> learned about the plans for a hydrogen bomb. This is serious stuff, Angela. Know, You're giggling about the underwear. said underwear in the middle of it. <laughs> Truman, who also wore underwear, learned about the plans for a hydrogen bomb, a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb, which had been first discussed but then rejected at Los Alamos. He asked his scientists, could the Russians do it? And when they all nodded, he said, in that case, we have no choice. We'll go ahead. He announced his intention to build a hydrogen bomb in January 1950, even though the scientists uh, at Los Alamos still had no idea exactly how to do it. No. 
And Britain tested its first atomic bomb in October 1952, bringing the world's nuclear states up to three. And then France became a nuclear power in 1960 and China in 1964. Obviously, no nuclear bomb has been used in war since 1945. And the We Are History podcast calls on world leaders not to use nuclear weapons, not ever, ever. That should do it, John. Yep. Uh, Um, I mean, obviously, we could debate all day, all night, whether nuclear weapons have kept the peace or will one day destroy us all, making none of it worth it. Um, There have been times during the past 70 years where the world came very close to seeing nuclear war. Uh, We haven't yet done an episode on the Cuban Missile Crisis, but if you haven't heard it, do listen to our episode on the Abel Archer incident in 1984. Yes. Yes, but it's incredible to think how quickly the world went from seeing the potential for an atomic bomb to detonating one over a crowded city. Basically, within... Six years uh, of the war, this was achieved. And within one decade, two opposing superpowers had the bomb. Although both the USA and the USSR did stop and have a good think after John wore his CND badge every day in the early 1980s. <laughs> Absolutely, that's right. <laughs> so. That's it for this explosive episode of We Are History. Um, thank you, Jim Baggett, for the book that John read. Fascinating, compelling. I recommend it, Angela. Yeah. Um, did you learn much that you didn't already know? Uh, bits and bobs, yeah. Bits and bobs, yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought this is my kind of subject, area of nerdity. So. I feel like I was teaching my grandma to suck eggs. <laughs> but we're back, John. That's episode one of series eight. Yeah, Done in the bag. Did. Thank you for your continuing support. Um, don't forget, if you want extra content, bits and bobs, merch, nice things like that, you can support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash history. Oh, while I'm here, um, I just want to do a quick plug because I am on tour at the moment with my stand-up show. It's called Hot Mess. It's not about history, but it's, uh, yeah, it's just me doing stand-up. It's a funny show. I'm really proud of it. It's the second leg of the tour and I've got dates all over the UK. It will have started in September, but it goes right through to the end of November. So if you fancy coming along, check out my website for dates and tickets which is angelabarnescomedy.co.uk. And I'd like to encourage you to follow We Are History Pod on Instagram. We are over there now and we are posting more and more on there because, uh, you know, Twitter's gone to hell in a handcart. So do come and follow us at We Are History Pod on Instagram. Other ways you can support us are to give us nice reviews on yeah. Apple Podcasts, five stars, please. And uh, we'll be back again next week. With Angela leading on another exciting subject from this century. Well, don't build it up too much, John. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be the best. Oh, God. See you next week, everyone. Thanks a lot. Bye. We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>